I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Dr. Cheryl Green, author of Heal Your Daughter, How Lifestyle Psychiatry Can Save Her from Depression, Cutting, and Suicidal Thoughts. The statistics are jarring when discussing the current medical health crisis among teens. 30% of America's teenage girls have contemplated suicide in the past year. 24% had suicidal thoughts with a plan, which mean which meets the criteria for inpatient admission. Dr. Cheryl Green addresses the unique stress fac- factors impacting teenage girls and gives parents or other caregivers six concrete ways to help their daughters develop health-promoting, depression-reversing habits. She begins by explaining the new field of lifestyle psychiatry and provides state-of-the-art, evidence-based information and guidance related to six lifestyle domains, nutrition, detoxification, exercise, sleep, emotional connectedness, and stress reduction. Uh, She is a board-certified lifestyle psychiatrist and uh, is based in Southern California and holds degrees from Harvard University, Princeton University, and graduated from Stanford University School of Medicine. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Dr. Green. Well, thank you for having me on, Catherine. So nice to be here. We're talking about lifestyle psychiatry, and I think maybe I'd like you to give us a more a detailed description of exactly what it is, because it's kind of, or it is a new phenomena. It's it's a, a different, uh, a new field, I guess, a new field of lifestyle psychiatry. So what exactly is that? Yes. Well, lifestyle psychiatry is actually in the process of being defined by the doctors practicing it, by the psychiatrists practicing it. Officially, it's a branch of lifestyle medicine, which is a board-certified field of medicine as of 2017. It's the newest branch of medicine. And what lifestyle medicine is, is uh, all the evidence-based practices that can actually reverse disease and create health in six domains. And you just mentioned those domains of nutrition, detoxification, exercise, uh, sleep hygiene, uh, emotional connectedness, and stress reduction. So it's lifestyle medicine is all the evidence for how to optimize each of those domains of health. And then lifestyle psychiatry aims at doing all of that, but with the goal specifically in mind of creating good mental health and reversing common mental problems like depression, anxiety. But you mentioned in your book that it doesn't require a diagnosis. So what does that mean? It doesn't require a diagnosis. Like say in traditional psychiatry, you go to a psychiatrist, he or she diagnoses you first and then treatment begins. But if it, yeah, yeah. well, there is the field of psychiatry, which is, you know, what's done by psychiatrists, but there's this other dimension of preventive and just simple common sense things that parents can practice at home if their kid is struggling, that they can, they can implement without having, without doing that yet, you know, before you would ever reach the point of having to go uh, through official channels such as inpatient, you know, uh, hospitalization or any of that, you can implement and structure the lifestyle, the way your child lives uh, in such a way that it's way less likely that your child will ever develop depression 
and anxiety and all of these chronic conditions in the first place. So, so what we're talking uh, about is preventative medicine, preventative medicine in psychiatry. I, I, it, that's what it sounds like, preventative it's medicine. It's kind of like a yeah. form of, of it can't, you know, the reason it doesn't require a diagnosis is because you can head off, ward off a lot of problems down the line just by doing this. But really, like the field of lifestyle medicine itself, it can prevent, treat, and reverse or cure uh, mental disorders. So now, uh, that, in the, uh, that's kind of bad. Well, in the intro, I mentioned that you address in your book the u- unique stress factors which impact teenage girls. So what are the unique factors? And I'm assuming they're unique uh, to girls as opposed to boys. And if, yeah, you know, and adults and all the rest. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, particularly during the pandemic, we saw a lot of things, you know, a lot of uh the way we can somewhat account for uh, the rise in depression in teen girls, that is high school girls, um, during the pandemic, some of those ways are, you know, that girls use social media a lot more than boys or other people. Some of them were living out of that. Some of them were so socially isolated from their real, uh, you know, friends, real-time interactions that they were exclusively using social media. Um, There was a lot more academic failure. There was a lot more drug use among females. Um, There was a lot more gender confusion. Uh, There was a lot more grief simply from, you know, family members dying. There was a lot more fear from, you know, worrying about the pandemic so all of these things changed, and they seem to impact girls disproportionately from boys because we know, for example, that emergency room visits for psychiatric reasons for girls doubled, whereas for boys, you know, teen boys, it didn't really change too much. So those are the big uh, culprits, uh, you know, that we're, that we're examining. Um, I guess the next question is, is that because, I'm wondering why, is that because girls when have a more need for connectedness in when they are living their quote normal lives they they connect maybe more with their girlfriends they talk more they have a lot more social interaction so that during covid they really missed it perhaps more than boys did because they don't require as much i don't know if social interaction is exactly the right word but that kind of uh, a very different kind of emotional lifestyle well, in my practice, that's certainly what girls are reporting. You know, we can't do a randomized controlled experiment as to why, but we do know what the girls are reporting. And so many of them felt isolated. They felt like they were cheated out of a normal social life. Uh, many didn't go to their prom or their graduation. Uh, yeah, and they felt just totally kind of cheated out of a normal high school life. Now I want to go back to the statistic as well. Uh, 30% of America's teenage girls have contemplated suicide. I mean, that's a really high statistic. Now, I, I we're talking about, I guess, after COVID, but this is has this been a trend even before COVID? That te- and, for, and if so, what are some of the reasons, what some of the other reasons besides being isolated during COVID? Yes, I think that the document you're referring to is from CDC, uh, the Center for Disease Control, 
published uh, the YRBS, the Youth Risk Behavior Survey, uh, in it was late February, early March of this year, 2023, uh, and it really was a survey from 2011, uh, let's see, 2011 to 2022, uh, encompassing those years, and really. Uh, showing the arc of the increase in depression, suicidal thoughts, cutting, uh, drug use, uh, transgenderism, all of these things, these trends uh, in high school students. So that was the document that kind of tracked these things. And all of them seemed to go up in tandem, you know, the school failure, the drug use among girls. Uh, so those, you know, the, the social isolation, the increased use of social media, so the thinking is, you know, we can't say that correlation is causation, uh, but that's what's suggested by the new data. And then in addition to all of those big changes, we can look at what happened to nutrition during the pandemic. You know, a lot of people, a lot of kids were at home while their parents are working, not necessarily eating real meals, maybe subsisting on snacks, uh, you know, the drug use we talked about, a lot of people were afraid to go outside to exercise. Uh, they weren't connecting emotionally and stress was through the roof from all fronts, you know, even from things that were like secondary exposures to stress, like their parents' stress level because they'd lost their job or they didn't know what was going to happen given, you know, deaths around them or things like that. All of those factors really seem to have affected girls. So, that's uh, that's what we're seeing in the you know in the field as they say and I I can tell you there were often times when I was on call when there were 12 girls lined up in the emergency room waiting to be seen waiting for an inpatient bed for example and at least here you know here at Loma Linda we're one of the biggest uh, inpatient facilities for teenagers in the LA basin in the Southern California area. And, you know, we're we're crowded. We're having hospitals call us, you know, can you take so-and-so? Uh, it was really a bad situation. So it's kind of uh, level Are we in somewhat, crisis? But, uh, it sounds like uh, we're in a crisis you know, situation for, I, I think uh, you've described it maybe in your book too, in a crisis situation uh, for inpatient care. So it really does behoove us to read your book and, 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 and practice some of these preventative lifestyle, uh, behaviors, uh, in, in the yeah, family. And, yeah. 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 But what yes, about, Pam? I mean, suicide you, is terrible. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, when ahead. you look at that statistic, that 30% of girls, uh, persistently had suicidal thoughts. 24% had suicidal thoughts with a plan. That actually is the criterion for inpatient admission. And what would that look like if we were truly meeting the psychiatric needs of girls? You know, that's the criterion. Would we have like an inpatient unit for every high school so that a quarter of the girls could be yeah. accommodated just to protect them? I mean, it's, it's crazy. We don't have enough resources for the inpatient, on the inpatient side. We don't have enough adolescent psychiatrists. We, we have maybe 7,000. We need maybe 40,000 or even twice that. So we don't have enough professionals uh, to meet these kind of needs. And so really, if parents don't step up uh, and do what they can, it doesn't look good for the future. <laughs> it, 
you know, so I'm hoping that, um, that parents will step up, that they'll read and educate themselves about lifestyle medicine, regardless of the source. It doesn't have to be my book necessarily, but, you know, educate themselves. What things do help, uh, with depression? What practices, what concrete things can I do around the house to ensure that, uh, the chances are optimized, uh, optimized if my child having a good life, having a good, happy, healthy life, which of course starts in the home. What about, but I want to back up a little bit because you just said that there's a, a dearth of adolescent psychiatrists, 7,000, there are 7,000 versus we need 40,000 or more. That, I mean, that's a huge difference. Why don't uh, medical, why don't students or residents or uh, go into adolescent psychiatry? What is there? Well, it is an additional, well, historically, it's been an additional fellowship on top of what's already been a very long medical training. You have four years of college, then you have four years of medical school, and then you have a GLIDE program whereby you do three years of psychiatry residency, followed by two years of child and adolescent psychiatry uh, fellowship. So it's a long program. They have uh, taken steps to shorten that and streamline the program for child and adolescent psychiatrists so they can get away with just just that, have that as their main focus, not see adults, only see child and uh, children and adolescents. And that program that they've got out there in the ether, you know, in the works uh, would be a three-year total residency and wouldn't require a fellowship. So they're they're you know, they're trying to get more child and adolescent psychiatrists out there, uh, but you know it's going to be a while. And they are training nurse practitioners. Who knows what kind of specialty training they'll have? Um, but we definitely de- do need more help. Uh, and in the meantime, and certainly, uh, parents can always help. I mean, instilling healthy habits—that's just basic. But the key is. You know, people have different ideas about what is healthy. What is a healthy habit? Everyone disagrees, but there is a science to that. So we actually know now what are the practices. We know very specifically what are the practices that can yield both physical health, uh, mental health, and longevity. Um, As I'm listening to you, I'm thinking it uh, from the perspective of a social worker and trying to get people to make those or to make lifestyle changes if they're not attentive to the nutrition, we talk exercise, stress reduction, very difficult to do with some, uh, some t- people, some demographics. I mean, it's, 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 uh, I don't know if that's something you address in the book, but some people maybe do already doing it and you're just uh, encouraging them to further do what they do because it's positive and it's good and they follow some of your, some of the guidelines. But what happens when you get families there where the parents are not going to be helpful or it's very difficult for them to Mm-hmm. Go, yeah. Well, to address you know part one of that, yeah. are people just doing this already by accident or something? I would say no. Um, the data shows that only about 3% of people are actually right now eating, for example, eating well, eating the whole food plant-based diet, which is the one with the most evidence, you know, over 800 studies showing that the whole food plant-based diet can really create health, reverse disease. We have massive, massive uh, experiments that 
that show that that is the case. And, you know, smaller randomized controlled trials showing that it's also true, that what's true of physical health, that it improves wildly, uh, is also true for mental health, that it, it improves tremendously. Smaller number of trials, but they are uh, pretty much, you know, ironclad at this point. We do, we do have enough evidence um, to say, yes, the whole food plant-based diet not only improves your physical health, it also reduces depression, uh, reduces anxiety, reduces the perception of stress. Uh, so things simple as that. What, what are you feeding your child? Is it the fast food, standard American diet, um, which we know the more of that you eat, the higher depression scores go? Or is it the whole food, you know, that is real food, real whole food, um, unprocessed, uh, organic if possible, uh, including some raw components, uh, you know, largely plant-based, 90%, not entirely plant-based, but largely plant-based. We know that that goes a long way toward remediating uh, nutritional deficiencies, which are at the root of a lot of poor mental health. We did that experiment back in the 50s with the Minnesota semi-starvation uh, diet, at the Minnesota semi-starvation experiment, where we took healthy conscientious objectors, put them for six months on a junk diet, which in those days uh, would have been, you know, white bread and water, kind of like white flour, white potatoes, um, turnips, uh, not a lot else. For six months of that, these healthy, vibrantly healthy and uh, content uh, men were basket cases. They were aggressing upon one another. They were having manic-type episodes. They were depressed. Uh, they were cutting, many of them. Uh, that is what happened. They, their, health fell, their mental health fell apart as their physical health did. And, you know, reverse that for six months on a healthy diet. Most of them recovered beautifully well and went on to have really good careers. So the experiment about nutrition has been done. And as Joel Furman points out in his book, Fast Food Genocide, <laughs> we're living that experiment right now with all the junk food, the fast food, the processed food that you can buy from these massive warehouses put in a microwave, uh, sort of near food or synthetic food uh, that the kids are eating that's creating a really a profile of nutritional deficiency and toxicity that could in and of itself cause some of the depression. I'm not saying that's the only cause by any means, but the nutrition and the toxicity, lack of nutrition and the incredible toxicity of our teens today is probably behind a good good bit of it. Then combine that with lack of exercise and adequate sleep. Um, then with the isolation, the huge amounts of stress kids have been under, it's as if all six domains of lifestyle medicine were recently turned on their head during the pandemic, certainly. So with you know, predictable results in mental health. Yeah, and you know, it sounds like a, a horrible, perfect storm. And I, I do want to add to that because I think this is so true. And as I'm part of the baby boomers and the aging population and all of what you're talking about works it works well for the aging population as well, that exercise and making sure you do exercise every day and eating well and all of those kinds of things because the same results, if, if you don't do it, depression, all of the anxiety, all of the stuff that you're talking about that happens with these young girls also happens 
in the aging population. You know, I, I interviewed a doctor during COVID and he said one of the things that he, no matter what, I think he was in New York City, actually, he gets out and exercises. He gets out and walks every day, whether it's, uh-huh. yeah, and that that was critical to his mental health, which is, you know, which is what we're talking about, obviously. So helping parents. Yeah, I but, think yeah, you're get, right. I think, yeah. you know, these um, these health measures are valid for all age groups, and I think they disproportionately affect the young and the old. I yeah. really do. Yeah. That's what well, I'm definitely seeing in my practice. So. Well, those are vulnerable populations, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the young and the old, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. uh, it's really key that they, they uh, you know, follow these guidelines. Okay, let's our parents, though, we've got these parents who aren't doing well themselves, who aren't doing the right thing for their kids. How do you engage them? I mean, that is really critical because, as you're saying, this is critical to their daughter's health. That's one question. Then the second question to suicide or thinking perhaps that their your daughter is depressed or unusually anxious. It, it's really scary. And um, at, at what point... How does a parent recognize maybe I need to take her to to your hospital, for instance, or to that she really does need to have some kind of a diagnosis? Is there a point at which you would yeah. say, okay, yeah. Definitely, definitely. So I think the first way to engage parents is just simple education. You know, here are the facts. Here are the facts. You know, these sort of dysfunctional domains are really impacting your kid. And here are the experiments. Here's the evidence. uh, And here's what you do to reverse all that, to take that layer of stress off your kid. Uh, So education is the first thing. Now with suicide, yeah. So what is normal teen behavior and what is uh, scary? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Teen behavior is really different. I mean, teens do stay up later, sleep in later. They do kind of isolate from parents to some degree more because, you know, at that age, they're really connecting intensely with their peers and less so with parents kind of moving away from the, the, um, the parent, the uh, family unit and branching out in society. You know, uh, they, they um, often have more irritability, this kind of thing toward parents. Uh, you know, those are normal. Those are normal. But what isn't normal and what is a warning sign is you find that your child is, you know, cutting, cutting, cutting at all. That is a real warning sign. Or you find that, you know, some one of your uh, parents of one of the friends of your teen have called you. you know, Did you know so-and-so texted that he was having suicidal thoughts? Or you look on the computer and you see in the history your teen uh looking up ways to commit suicide, or your teen is not coming out of the room at all. It's kind of like the head under the duvet sign. They're not wanting to get out of bed at all. Uh, They're camping out on social media 24-7. There are signs of your teen being bullied, which, of course, humiliation is one of the huge risk factors for uh, suicide. So you see some of these warning signs. That is the time to just haul your kid in to get help. You know, anything about suicide, you want to take them to an emergency room immediately. Um, some other things like depression, you can take them to a psychologist. I would say a psychologist or a social worker first uh, to see if it can be talked out. Um, 
that's what I would do first. You know, that's what I uh, would recommend first. Uh, And of course, to implement all of these things in the home so that those layers of pressure can be taken out. For example, if your child is isolated, there's so much you can do on that front for your child. Uh, The best things to do are to get your kid out into the world interfacing with groups that are healthy because within every healthy group, there'll be an opening. You know, there'll be an opening. Oh, hey, come sit by me or somebody waving or somebody looking who catches your eye who could be a potential friend Um, as long as the group is healthy. You know, something, you know, something, a group oriented around a cause you believe in, a group oriented around your family's spirituality or philosophy you know, a healthier group. Um, I won't name any of the unhealthy groups, but there are plenty of them out there. (laughs) Um, So yeah, just getting your kid engaged, there will be somebody out there. Your kids crave that companionship. They naturally form friendships in circles where they're at all like-minded in any way. You know, that's a great, I just want to respond because we only have a couple minutes left because I think that is really, those are great, that is a great suggestion. And I think the medical community could uh, listen to you as well because, uh, you know, they tend to, not everyone, but a lot of physicians, um, you know, they just escalate, as you've said, doses of psychiatric medications, you know, just take a pill and so you'll feel better or you won't, you'll be less anxious and really you don't have to go that route. You can go the route that we've been talking about for the past half hour. Um, and you spell it out in your book. And I, so I, I want to just, because we, as I said, we have a couple minutes left. I just want to, uh, give the title of the book again, heal your daughter, how lifestyle psychiatry can save her from depression cutting and suicidal thoughts. And the author is Dr. Cheryl Green. And um, so, you know, Dr. Green, so give us places that we can go to obviously purchase your book or listen to your book on Audible or uh, websites to give us more information about what we've been talking about. Well, yes, um, it's available just about everywhere, all the major bookstores and online, certainly at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, book baby uh, website uh, in most of the major outlets. And my website is uh, https um, colon forward slash forward slash Cheryl L. Green MD dot com. C H E R Y L, a second L, green like the color, G R E E N M D dot com. So, yeah, you can look me up. I do have a private practice down here in LA if you're in the area. I'm licensed to practice psychiatry all over the state of California and a few other states. Uh, And um, so you can see me uh, in person. You can read the book. I think the book is a good introduction. That's that's definitely easiest, cheapest. Um, And again, it's on Audible, so you can listen listen to it in your car. It's an e-book, so you can put it on your Kindle. And it's, it's just out there. My goal in writing this book about lifestyle psychiatry for teens is because I mainly see teens. I see 40 to 60 teen girls every week. And um, I needed something for the parents of those teen girls because all of them, the universal question was, gosh, I want to help her. I don't know how. 
what can I do? So this book was written to give my patients, but it's also aimed at, you know, larger audience out there because all teens are in the same boat. And literally 30% of teens having suicidal, teen girls having suicidal thoughts and 57% persistently depressed or hopeless. That's just in the last one year alone. So it's a universal problem and parents universally can help. And by doing these things, they can actually reverse a lot of the depression that's out there. A lot of it isn't just, you know, a brain imbalance or anything like that. What it is is a real problem. There's a real etiology for depression. It, it really can be reversed if you just know how. And these are the, some of the simple common sense ways of reversing it. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show and sharing all that information. Dr. Cheryl Green, author of Heal Your Daughter. Uh, We really appreciate it. Thank you, Catherine. Yeah, thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 